there, I'm Dominic O'Key, and you're listening to episode 3 of Serious Play, a podcast about role-playing games and academic research. I'm here with Aza Roast, Liz Stainforth, and Oliver Thurley, and in this episode, we're going to be joined by Natalia Stroika, an existential game maker based in the USA. Natalia is the founder of Ludic Liberation, a game-playing network that facilitates in-person and online sessions, the aim of which is to reveal and release the player's internalised limitations. Inspired by role-playing games, transformational social therapy, pleasure activism, ritual and magic alike, Natalia has developed a rich set of rules-based and rules-breaking scenarios intended to remind us that in a way we are always playing. The play is always there as an opportunity for us to play around with. Today, Natalia joins me and the team to discuss ludic liberation, the concept of play, the adoption of alter egos, existential drag, and much, much more. A story I like to tell about why I do this work, um, and I feel like is actually my most profound qualification, despite the fact that I I do have a PhD, is, um, is an experience I had in 2018 which is I was doing um, a plant medicine journey and I was talking to a, sort of a divine consciousness or what I understood to be a divine consciousness. And I was having a conversation with it internally and asking various things. And I was really struck by the role that um, the shaman um, who was holding the ceremony was playing and what a careful um, job they were doing, holding space and comforting people and keeping time. Um, And I was sort of like talking to this universal consciousness and I was saying like, wow, like does everybody have a role like that, that they play? Um, Does everybody have a job like this to do? This this is clearly an important job for, for, uh, for community. And, and what the response I got, and it was like, kind of like a knowing, like an immediate knowing was that, Everybody has gifts um, and everybody has different things that can blossom inside them, but you are loved anyway. You don't have to express that gift. You're, you're loved anyway. It's not a requirement for you to be that thing that you can be. Um, and there's many gifts that you have, um, but it really pleases the universe when you, <laughs> when you do blossom. It's kind of like, you know, when a flower blooms, everyone is so psyched about that. Uh, like, wow, the flower is happy. Anybody who gets to observe that is happy. The universe is kind of smiling. So I was like, okay, that's a cool answer. That's like kind of liberating. Like you don't really have to do anything, but you can, and that'll be cool. So then I was like, all right, well, do I have a, a gift or a role um to play or that would be cool if it blossomed and um the uh, the answer that i got immediately again that i didn't exactly expect i wasn't fishing for was um yes you are a game maker i was like what i don't really know what that means um are you sure (laughs) (laughs) um uh yeah I, i wasn't like on the path to be a game designer. I wasn't really even like a game player, Um, but you know, I sort of trusted that response and sort of filed it away for later. And then after a while, started to realize how so many different things that I've done in, you know, prior to that moment have have kind of aligned with that, um, with that response that I had, uh, I'd studied learning um, for my, PhD, learning sciences, and had designed a lot of different kind of educational experiences that were um, games or participatory simulations or were playful in nature. And I was constantly using that to kind of put people in situations that were challenging and uncomfortable and transformative. Um, and I really, really enjoy that work. And so yeah, I had realized that I was sort of on the path towards that already. Um, and then I kind of chose to embrace that more and uh, and make it into a real practice. Like, what would it mean to be a game maker? And so, yeah, so kind of out of 
asking that question, I started uh, Ludic Liberation and the lab and everything else that followed. Oh, wow. Yeah, maybe that's a good space to then turn that around and to say, well, what is Ludic Liberation then? What was that thing that you made out of this experience? Uh, yeah, so the first thing that I realized that I needed to do was to have a place to play and to um, to learn about what being a game maker could be and um, and to play myself, to play a lot myself. So I, I started um, the Ludic Liberation Lab, which is a monthly gathering to use um, play as um, a way to ask questions, um, to experiment with different existing games or game or experiment with designing new games with different forms of playful facilitation. And out of that, eventually I started kind of writing up what was happening in these labs as, ex as experiments um, in my newsletter that is called The Lab Report. And then kind of the ludic liberation itself evolved. I realized that it was kind of itself an approach and a practice and a philosophy um, and, and that yeah, I sort of discovered by by doing it, by by playing and experimenting. The ludic liberation is an approach to personal and collective play that aims to um, help you confront um, and challenge and revise um, your personal limitations. Um, yeah, so kind of like your internal internal rules. Hmm. So you, so then it's it's something that's clearly deeply personal. Um, but the experience of playing um, is is linked in your the the website that you have for Ludi Liberation is linked to and collectivity and a world beyond the individual self. So is there then something political that's going on in this act of play? Yeah, I think all Ludic Liberation play is collective and relational because we play as uh, avatars in an interdependent world. Um, when we um, make moves in our world that affects our perception of the world that and can affect other people, um, how we show up in the world affects um, how we relate to other people. So, um, yeah, it's kind of treating the, the entire experience of existence in relation with others, in, um, in community with others as the, the, the field of play. Mm. Yeah, and you write on the website that um, we play to remember we are always playing. Um, and that's obviously a we there, it's a collective experience. Um, so what's at stake in playing for you? What does uh, playing allow us to do? Well, I think that is the stake. Is Playing helps us remember that we're always playing. That <laughs> um, I think that's a really profound reminder. So I call myself a, a game maker, but uh, slash destroyer, but I think I'm really like a play reminder. Um, I want to remind myself first and everyone that's, you know, willing to be reminded that we are always playing, that we're here as um, avatars following rules that we've um, either inherited or agreed to, to play by, that we have the power to change those rules, um, that we have a, the power to relate differently um, to ourselves and our goals and, and the possibilities for action. Um, so I think that by playing sort of smaller games that are, um, that we can clearly agree on, okay, this is a, the play space, this is imaginative. Um, we're taking on new rules that we didn't come into the space, um, you know, agreeing to play before. Um, we could kind of see this process in action. We kind of like, yeah, like see the behind the scenes, kind of take off the, the cover and be like, okay, this is how games are made. It's through this relational agreement and trying things out. Um, and my hope is that in sort of doing that in a small, safe, contained space, um, we could sort of transfer some of that remembering some of the, the meta reflection of what's going on to our um, everyday lives and, and also see the possibility of changing our rules and goals in, in the, the way that we play our our lives.
was also really struck by what you said about play as um, something that we that we're doing all the time, and that there are insights that you can um, have when you're doing um, these collective games through the ludic liberation labs and like somehow the residue of that might then kind of start to impact on you know your day-to-day life i i really i don't know i i was just really struck by um how you uh, phrased that and i i'd be really interested to kind of hear more about it because i feel like we were kind of just really scratching the surface of, of something like that when we were discussing why we had decided to um, call this series serious play um, and part of it uh, was simply to take play more seriously to not look at it as this kind of activity that you undertake as a child and um, which in and then you kind of move into adult life and it sort of um, recedes completely so yeah really trying to uh, kick back against that really and I felt like that was coming out in in what you were saying so it would just be interesting to yeah hear more about your experiences with that yeah um I want to give you some a, a cool example or something of the way that um that works I'm trying to go through some of the labs that we've had yeah because I was also interested and this is like um <laughs> not asking the question now so much as just commenting in like um who you who you play with was it like an open call how it got sort of set up and obviously because there is a a relationship of trust then that you're building with those people that you play with especially if you play with the same people and I wasn't sure about that if that was the case if it if there was a question of commitment in this group as well um through which you kind of build on what you've done before so I don't I don't know but it would be great to know a bit about that as well yeah, sure. Um, Not to bombard so, you. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I, I love talking about it. It's, it's the coolest thing I do. <laughs> um, yeah, when I started it, I, I had meant to, for it to be a, an in-person gathering. Um, so I put out a call in Philadelphia um, for people to join. And I kind of, yeah, expressed what the vision was just to have a, a place to experiment with games and um, play for liberation. And um, a couple of very different people showed up and it was interesting. Some people who identified as kind of like game makers and game artists who were just like, you know, probably respond to anything with the word game. <laughs> and they're like, I have to check it out. It might be competition, it might be collaboration, um, or it might be something cool, you know, something to learn from. Um, a couple of like, uh, a friend who's a psychologist, social psychologist, but also like a deep player, um, like a video gamer, um, uh, someone who was like really interested in like political transformation. Um, yeah, I don't know. So different people are attracted to it. And it's not something that uh, that people are required to keep participating in from month to month, like people can respond to, to can join um, a lab if it feels interesting to them. So every lab has a, a theme or kind of a question that we're asking. So we've, um, the question is always kind of like, how does, how can we playfully re relate to this thing or how can play um, help us think about liberation um, in relation to, you know, X and some of the things we've played in with have been, um uh like desire uh um conversation how we hold conversations um our relationship to gender a relationship to the waste the idea of waste um uh attention how you know how can we become more liberated in our in the ways that we pay attention uh we've played with translation and writing um, synchronicity, um, yeah, lots of different things. So yeah, so people join if the topic seems exciting to them. Some people come regularly, um, but no one is kind of required. There's always the reminder that you can choose to play whatever game you want. You can choose to stop at any time. You could choose to leave if it doesn't feel good anymore. So sort of emphasizing um, consent uh, and and the 
the freedom to withdraw consent at any point. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, some examples of how, I mean, I feel very affected by every lab. I'm probably, I feel probably most affected by every lab because I spend time afterwards reflecting on it and um, writing a lab report um, and, you know, and, and sort of distilling insights from each experience. Um, so yeah, I think I've, I've changed, like, I remember like, um, and I have guest facilitators to other game makers who hold space um, and who lead games. So I remember like we had a lab on gender, which is like, what are the rules that my friend Indigo Esmond led? Um, and uh, during that lab, we asked like, you know, what is what are the rules of gender? What are the games we play with gender? How can we um, be more liberated in relation to that? Um, and you know, like that lab, like really blew my mind. <laughs> um, I thought about gender obviously throughout my life a lot, but it was um, it was like yeah, the lab really made me see in this relational way how we. Um, <laughs> well, so the, the lab report I, that I wrote about it was like. It's like really in the game of gender, gender is sort of the dom, like where we're always playing this like BDSM game with, with gender, where gender is always, is, it's always like in charge. It's always like has this power over us. And, um, and so we must kind of like love to submit to it, which, you know, it could be a pleasurable experience too. But so thinking of liberating ourselves from gender, um, yeah, so so so, so I, after the lab, I thought a lot about like what would it mean to really be liberated from this very limited game, um, or how to play with it more. And I also really like to think about drag as a form of play, um, and you know, kind of think that yeah, that's a really good form of existential play. And thinking of um, you know dressing up, um, in not 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 just like the classic drag, but like, but drag all the time. <laughs> like we're always in drag. <laughs> RuPaul says we're born naked and the rest is drag. You know, I note that you're speaking to us as Natalia Stroiker, um, the game maker of Ludic Liberation. Um, you write on your website that it's a, a self-designated characterization and avatar. So what does this adoption of a persona kind of afford for you? Um, What's important about it? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. Um, yeah, so the my game maker identity uh, started emerging, and I started um, cultivating it more after um, I completed my PhD and was trying to figure out how to relate to um, the academy and my professional role within it. Um, and I felt just really, you know, it's, it was funny because I had like just received a PhD, so I was very qualified <laughs> um, in, as, as that name. <laughs> but I felt really burdened by that, um, uh, by like sort of the public identity that I felt like I had to then present as that person. Um, and I, I felt really limited by it rather than like sort of empowered as I had hoped of, of, a doctorate would make me feel so um yeah so then this like other last name kind of presented itself I don't know if I had I don't know I feel like I had just like an epiphany in my journey I'm like what if I had this other last name and I really just like liked the ring of it and um it felt it felt really I don't know just like sort of daring and rebellious and it felt like this like persona that didn't have to have this history of um of all of all of her qualifications <laughs> and, and and the 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 word stroika uh as i yeah mentioned on the website it uh it means building the process of building but also it's like what a construction site is called and um i really like that as a sort of you know, like an, an anarchist name, kind of like the, um, I'm the builder of a new world, um, but also I'm like a, a work in progress. <laughs> I'm also in the in the mess of building. Um, so yeah, I, I identify with it in, in sort of this like spiritual way. And 
um, it feels really liberating to take on that identity. And one of the practices I do in the lab um, when we kind of start playing is I always encourage people to change their name to um, different things every time, um, but to just, yeah, remember that like, hey, names are one of the ways that we play. <laughs> um, and we can uh, we could play with changing that even for this just temporary container of 90 minutes. Um, so yeah, so I've so having this avatar, it just it, it, it really does feel in an embodied way like I can do different things. I want to just um, come back to the thing you said right at the start. And what was the, was the conversation with universal consciousness? Was that the phrase that you used? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Divine consciousness. So you're having this conversation, and and the, the response comes to you that you are a game maker, right? And you're a you and you and you're also a game destroyer. But and we've we've talked about this idea of play, and that you're always playing and reminding people to play. And I love that so much. And one of the things that I kind of want to know a little bit is is what like what's a game to you because if everything is play is everything a game but what you know like that's that's a that's a question to say like what are you doing in your labs but also like like what is a game for you i think uh a game is a set of rules and constraints rules and limits and also win and lose conditions um and and those could be very very different um, but I do think of of a game as yeah as a set of rules, constraints that kind of define the space of the game, um, and what would winning the game be, and what would sort of losing the game be. And I'm very inspired, and um, I, I'm sure you're all familiar with James Carse's book um, Finite and Infinite Games. Um, but he starts it off saying uh, there are two kinds of games um some games are played with a goal to win and other games are played with uh, the goal to continue playing so the win condition could be could be not winning right if not that ending so that we can define the win conditions um but a lot of win conditions are much more i don't know concrete and maybe boring like for a lot of <laughs> our existential games, like, you know, death is bad, breakup is bad, um, money is good, money's win, um, you know, fame is win. <laughs> um, so, and and oftentimes we we can be we can be playing games but be unconscious of what the rules and constraints and win and lose conditions are. We're still on some level, we know what the rules and constraints and win and lose conditions are, but we're not always um, kind of explicit about them because if we were explicit about them, we might realize, hey, this is a shitty game. <laughs> I don't want to be playing this. Um, so yeah, um, so that's how I think of a game. And I think of play as the way of relating to a game, actually. So you could play a game by being a good player, being like, choosing to follow the rules and trying to win and succeed in the game. You could also play a game by subverting the rules, um, by cheating. Cheating is a legitimate way to play a game. Um, you could choose to refuse the game and that's a way of relating, that's a way of playing. So playing is sort of the, the more agentive um, personal activity that you do in relation to a game. That's fascinating. And I think um, I was just kind of interested to go back to the question of how this relates to what actually takes place at the Ludic Liberation events, because I'm kind of thinking, um, you know, if, if we think about, so you, you have a topic that you choose each month that you're going to devise rules around. If you're, if you're, you mentioned like attention as one of the, one of the topics that you've worked with before. If I think of, uh, you know, we've played Dungeons and Dragons together and other RPGs together and stuff like this. If I think of, we were meeting and playing a game about attention where we'd all, I don't know, choose Dungeons and Dragons characters who had a sh short attentions. I don't know, something, something like that. 
we, we could have some interesting conversations or some interesting experiences based on that um, and and maybe maybe come away with some some of our thinking about attention moved on in some way what's what's different going into ludic liberation about that what are the kind of processes that you go through in determining determining the rules that you're going to be working with uh, in a given month and particularly i thought it was really interesting that you placed so much emphasis on the, this idea of having kind of win or lose conditions because certainly for kind of my my limited understanding of ttrpgs it's always been one of the big kind of appeals of uh, the genre right is the idea that oh you can't really win or you can't really lose or you know it's it's up to you to determine the the win or lose conditions for yourself um yeah how does that how does that relate to to what goes on in ludic liberation yeah so attention the attention lab is a really good example and it's a one that really affects the way that you might see the world afterwards um uh, so some of the things we we did in that lab, for example, was like, yeah, so I always invite people to change their name in the beginning and to just like change it to like the last thing your mind is got kind of stuck on. You know, maybe it's like a, a, a song or, you know, like maybe you like buying new shoes. So you're like noticing everyone's shoes all of a sudden. Um, and that's just always kind of fun to to make this very internal thing that, you know, we were privately experiencing making make it public and shared um that's sort of funny um one of the games we played during that lab was um to pick uh, a random object around us something very ordinary and like pay like extraordinary um intense attention to it um and like you know to like smell it and and lick it and like and like to look at it as if it was like sexy or um to uh and yeah to and then and then we like we like spent some time looking at our individual objects and then we'd like share them with each other um and then ask questions about that object so we like you know like you just realize how incredibly amazing <laughs> and often like kind of sexual a lot of ordinary objects are like as you like you start like playing with like an elastic band and you're like well what is and, and start asking these like estranging questions about it like what is this for like what does it do and they're like it holds things together <laughs> um uh or like what does the pen do you know and like and like you know like what are what are these things on it and it's like oh it like explode it can like it's dangerous it could like be a weapon and, and so you start looking at these things that you're so used to um seen in a very ordinary routine you know conditioned way in a new way um and that definitely then transfers over to sort of regular life because you um you know you could realize how how easy it is to see something differently um how much wonder is available around us um and how fun it could be and it's more fun <laughs> with other people um it's more it, it, it so i think for me the win condition of ludic liberation is that we have fun <laughs> fun is important um and that we sort of generate insights and that we stop when it doesn't feel good anymore <laughs> so the lose would be like going on for too long or you know like totally derailing um although if we're still having fun and, and generating insights then still we're still winning um and well and the win is to the other win is to also be to be liberating so um if we have these games that we play, you know, like if we're used to seeing a pen as a pen, it's just a boring object, just very functional. And we start to, and, and by playing a game, we learn to stretch the ways that we're seeing it. We learn to expand the, the moves that are available in the game and even the win condition. So like, um, you know, relating to a pen in a typical, reality might be like okay do i have a pen that works <laughs> um and you know by sort of playing some ludic liberation games you might start to relate to a pen it's like um wow does this do i have a pen that's like very aesthetically pleasing to me or that i enjoy touching or that like i want to like doodle with um 
you know, so that you kind of expand your, uh, your ways of relating to something. To me, that's liberating. So that's one of the, one of the wins that I'm constantly pursuing. I was just going to say, it's, it's really um, interesting to hear you speak more about it. And it's just setting off lots of different, um, firing off lots of different connections for me. And I, I think I'm interested in when you're doing, playing those games together, how do constraints um, work alongside that kind of aim broadly of liberation? Uh, like, you know, constraints being the rules perhaps of the game that you've set up, like how do those things play off each other? I think that, that would be interesting to know. And also that I, that thing of destroying, I think is really intriguing. Like as you're playing, are you just have the sense of destroying at times? Cause we are really, I think used to associating games with making, building, but I like the idea of destroying being this kind of generative process as well. So yeah, but I don't know, two different things. Constraints and liberation, building, destroying. I'm really interested in both those things. Yeah, and they're absolutely related. So yeah, I think that becoming aware of our constraints um, is the first step to liberating, to stretching those constraints, to revising them, or to also enjoying them. Because I think that's one of the liberating ways we can relate to um, reality <laughs> is to acknowledge our limits and and enjoy them and to think oh this is cool you know like um one of the sort of yeah the 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 spiritual philosophy that kind of came from this you know universal consciousness message that i'm a game maker is that the universal consciousness is, is an unlimited being but being in a human avatar is is an, is a voluntary limiting experience. It's choosing to have constraints in this particular body, in this particular time and reality and um, set of world circumstances. And that's exciting. And that creates fun friction and, and interesting encounters, which is all the things that, you know, um, this, that's the reason you, you probably play um, Tables Have RPGs is, is to take on, uh, you know, different limits and constraints and have different encounters. And it would be boring if all of you were just <laughs> gods who could do anything and transform all the time and could do anything and make anything happen. Um, so it's, yeah, it's it's fun and revealing to re realize constraints and to, to learn to enjoy them as well. Um, and so the destruction is of the like, it is really of the internalized limitation. It's 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 of the feeling that like this is um, whatever limit I'm experiencing is I'm a victim of it, or it it has to cause me suffering, or there's nothing I could do about it. Um, so it's 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 the destroying of that relationship to it, and um, and yeah, it's a generative process, and like oh, it opens up space and new possibilities, even if it's even if that space is it, it's not necessarily creating right away it's kind of like okay well now you could play in the rubble of the, the previous constraints in, in the ruins yeah definitely the, the the example of the like the game that you were that you were giving of like you know like looking at the pen and whatever it actually it made me think a lot of pauline oliveros's deep listening exercises which is really about that kind of like reframing the way that you kind of relate to the world and exist in the world but then it made me think but for me like doing those deep listening exercises or games they're really really personal things and i i don't know how i would share that with someone else and also like you know if i if i look at a pen and i try and relate to it in a really different way and really unusual the question that i'm then thinking is like well how do, how do i share that because i think for me and maybe for us like when we play these games together the coolest aspect of them is sharing that right and and one of the things that i kind of wanted to know is that like how do your how do your labs how do your games kind of how do you share that experience with people and how do you share it with the world and i guess this might be coming on to like the lab reports as, as something that exists after the game yeah, how do you how do you share these experiences with people that are playing the game, and how do you share these experiences with people after the game? 
Yeah, man. Sharing is so interesting <laughs> and a really complicated concept, actually. Um, I think we, you know, it's another thing we take for granted. I should probably do a lab on sharing. <laughs> um, because what does it really mean to share something? Like, what does it mean to share a culture? What does it mean to share um, even time together? Like, I kind of think of sharing as like, um, well, there, there are many metaphors we could use for, for sharing in the way that the metaphors that we would use would um, obviously color how we think and the mental models that we build. Um, but if we're thinking of sharing as kind of like holding a piece of something, like a, a cloth, and we're all holding it from different ends, like we're holding a kind of a collective thing, but each of us is holding a different thing and having a different personal experience. So um, I also really like the, you know, the parable of the nine blind men touching an elephant and everybody kind of feels different part. And so it can describe an elephant in different ways. So I kind of think of sharing that way. Um, and, uh, and I definitely think of participatory experiences as having that kind of like elephant quality to them where everybody is having a very personal experience. Uh, and they're bringing in who they are, they're bringing in what their day has felt like, what their triggers are, what their what their body feels like and on that particular day. And they're having they're processing, you know, a very different experience than someone else. But other people are witnessing it. And I do think that that witnessing part is important. And we're we're not able to witness everything that goes on. Um, in each other internally, but that's why play is exciting to me as a tool because it it's sort of by sort of changing what we usually do, changing our regular scripts, it can um, force people to be more spontaneous um, and and also by giving the permission to be something else. Um, it can invite people to more to to show parts of themselves that are usually hidden or repressed or you know and feel like inappropriate. So that often happens right in like role playing spaces where people like take on like well like I'm usually a really nice person but I want to play this like evil you know angry character or something and like you might like allow some of those things to come out. So um, I think that the witnessing aspect of relational play is really important because it um, it allows us to. To make something you know real and 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 public and try something out and also to like um usually play spaces are pretty safe and and supportive and people are welcoming and um affirming in those spaces even when there's like kind of playful tension so you could try on something and feel not rejected by it so that's another thing that i um try to create in the labs is opportunities for people to kind of like try doing something different than they would otherwise do um, and and be received in it um, by others, be witnessed and observed and, um, and accepted. So I think that that's how my idea of sharing is sort of like is revealing a little bit of our internal experience to each other and allowing that to be seen and witnessing that for other people. Um, and I, you know, I probably do that more than other people because I end up um, writing the lab reports and, you know, deeply reflecting on what my experience was. And I don't claim that that experience is universal for other people, but what I've anecdotally gotten from some of the players who then read the lab reports is like, oh, thank you for, you know, processing that, for articulating um, something that I felt but kind of didn't have the words to express, um, for helping it connect to other things. So that's kind of like how I, what I feel like my role is. I think of play, you know, and this is, I think a form of serious plays. I think of this kind of play, like liberatory play as um, kind of a form of psychedelic medicine. Um, so, you know, I don't know if <laughs> you all have experience with um, those kinds of journeys, but they often, for them to be, you know, you could have kind of like you could do it for entertainment or for fun, but for it to be sort of a transformative healing experience, you want to make room for and, and give space for integration, for kind of connecting your insights, learnings to to who you are and 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 how you want to relate to the world. So the the lab reports are kind of in a, an attempt to do integration for our play events. Mm -hmm.
Um, I actually wanted to ask more about what what a lab report actually looks like because yeah, I found this really really interesting, and I think for me this also relates back to what you were saying originally about the the deficits or the frustrations of um of various forms of academic research and the formalities that you have to engage uh in in doing kind of traditional academic research this is something that i'm really interested in relation to ttrpgs because i mean with the research i do it's kind of very much um ethnographic and it's this it's this challenge of you've spent a day hanging out with a group of people your the the bounds of your research are not kind of confined to um a laboratory or a page but they're conversations over dinner they're like something you think about in the taxi afterwards um they're the the you know the the photo you've discover on your phone six months after the fact when you're writing it up and ultimately at the end of that process you sit down at the end of the day and think well i've got to write my field notes now and how do i try and give represent this in some way and i we've talked about this before i think about that as this is like when we're playing rpgs and you want to draw a map or something like this it's another way of kind of recording um this ephemeral experience that you've undergone um so yeah how does how does what does a lab report look like in that sense how do you even in the sense of kind of how do you formulate it how do you try and um give some give some permanent trace or record of these ephemeral uh, relational events yeah uh, I, I really relate to all of it that you described about ethnographic research uh yeah, there's no satisfying way, I feel like, to to translate and to share that the fullness of that experience. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, rich, rich data and cool qualitative analysis. Um, you know, there's some really beautiful um, accounts, but, you know, but as researchers, we know that there's so much more <laughs> yeah, and so much more intimacy in that experience. Um, so I'm still figuring it out and I'm still experimenting with um, with forms um, and I've tried different things. I've like, I've tried to record um, the labs and then sort of, you know, to analyze the video afterwards. Um, I've tried to do more of like, yeah, like writing kind of like a field, field notes afterwards, after the labs um, from my own impressions. Um, I've, you know, sometimes we generate artifacts um, and, you know, sort of questions in the chat afterwards. Um, and I incorporate those. Um, I try to connect my own impressions to things that happened, um, you know, so, to, to sort of substantiate it with evidence um, from the lab. So like what happened when we played this game? So I, I often describe you know, some of the activities that we did and then kind of like what were some of the outcomes. And I'm really like, um, I'm not looking so much for like a comprehensive or exhaustive report that would not be interesting to um, readers or probably to myself. Um, but I'm, so I'm, I'm always kind of looking for surprises. So I go into each lab having some expectation or some ideas about the concept, but I'm always surprised. Um, and it's always deeper and more interesting than I'd anticipated. Um, so I try to really like, yeah, kind of capture those things and, and then try to um, make some theories um, about like, what was, wh why was it surprising? So when, when we have surprises, um, that means we took something, and, and I say that in the lab, like, you know, it, it's called a lab because we um, we expect things to fail. We conduct experiments and experiments might fail. So there's some games that I design or other people um, design that like don't feel successful. You know, they feel kind of clunky or awkward or weird. Um, but that's, I find that useful. And, and, and I try to look for specifically what made that, fail <laughs> um 
because then that reveals like what we took for granted there. So that helps us reveal the rules that we were, um, that were hidden. So for example, yeah, I'm just like starting to remember things now. Like we had this one, um, lab on playing with rules and we played this game called nomic which was designed by philosopher um the rules are out there online sometimes somewhere you, you all should play it it's so it's kind of like it comes with a set of rules i think something like 30 something rules and then um the the purpose of the game or the the, the mechanic of the game is that you try collectively to change the rules um but you have to start with like with consensus and then if you vote it consent if you yeah collectively unanimously vote that you 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 have to have a majority or something then you could start changing the rules by that but we played we had like 13 people or something and we like we ended up like not being able to change one rule <laughs> we changed one rule over like two rounds because it was just like too hard to get consensus with like 13 people um and it was and people had to like rationalize a little bit of like you know why they were voting against something and it was fascinating because people like and a lot of people that are attracted to ludic liberation lab are kind of like politically progressive you know like they're <laughs> um you know are interested in ideas of freedom and social justice but when we were playing this game like it was fascinating to watch how much people wanted to limit other people's freedom to to you know to win <laughs> and so that was really surprising to learn as how much we kind of like have these like internal fascists in us and want to like police other people and um and then some people were of course playing totally differently and they were like let's just like make all the rules like crazy or, or like i think we changed like some sort of trivial rule that didn't do anything <laughs> um so uh so yeah so i try to uh so tr i try to like reveal surprises um through the through the lab report and then kind of um give evidence for them um and formulate how they might help us um I don't know play play with something outside of the lab as well yeah that sounds um it sounds fascinating just to hear you speak more about that I think we're all just like really interested to hear about those insights um and I, I it just occurred to me as well when you were speaking that one thing a function of the lab reports as well which actually isn't trivial is being able to synthesize and articulate something in a way that's digestible for the people that were there as well like um, and you said that you'd had responses where people have said you put into words something that I felt. Mm -hmm. That might seem like really basic uh, compared to a lot of the other things that you were talking about as well, but it does uh, seem to me that's actually really fundamental as well, like a basic function of a lab report to be able to then communicate that to that group. Because I think it's something actually that we take for granted a lot, like talking about things that we take for granted. Um, you know, how we communicate things. A report is almost asking you, I think, as I say, to do that work maybe of, uh, of synthesis and, and drawing out insights in a way that's then ultimately um, useful and perhaps in, in a way that's kind of shared uh, among that group. So that was something that's kind of occurring to me as well in terms of that kind of communicative capacity that it holds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it helps me because I don't remember <laughs> everything I do. Uh, so it's, it's fun to go back and be like, wow, we really played a lot of games and learned things. I, I forget all the time. That's why I kind of have to remind myself, like, we play to remember we're always playing because I forget all the time, <laughs> even yeah. though I kind of make that, you know, my life project now. Yeah, me too. You're making me realize how much I've forgotten things that we've done so it's also I think we need to adopt some kind of lab report format you know for ourselves as well <laughs> yeah I just I just wanted to add that I really love um the idea of revealing surprises there's one of the there's one of the um formula for how you go about composing a lab report I think that's that's such a neat way of of phrasing, I mean, I, for me, that's such a neat way of phrasing like the outcome of research, right? What, it, what's the point? What's the what? What have you learned from this? You should re replace every kind of conclusion section of an article with what surprises have been revealed in the process, right? That would be that would be such a nice way of formulating it. Yeah, I think it's it's myself liberating the 
the genre of the lab report. So I don't know if you all had a better science education in the UK, but I remember uh, doing lab reports in science class in school um, in the United States. And, uh, you know, you you always knew what the lab report had to be. You know, you'd do this lab and you'd already learned what was supposed to happen. And then you would conduct the actual lab, I don't know, with little chemicals and stuff. And then something different would often happen or like something would deviate from the plan. And it was... But then we would kind of like always fudge the results, which, you know, awesome also happens in real life research. Um, but you'd fudge the results to make it fit the lab because you're trying to you were playing the game of writing the 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 school genre and get the grade um, that you wanted. Um, and I like I felt as a you know little school kid, I felt so profoundly like upset by that process because it discouraged observation and discouraged real curiosity. Um, so yeah, so this is my this is trying to reclaim the form of the the lab report and um, and to observe what actually happened and to be surprised by the results um, rather than write something that like oh okay like yeah our hypothesis was confirmed. So I just have one more specific um, question on that. Thinking about this and thinking about, yeah, how this relates to experiences of games that we've played and the surprises that are, uh, that are revealed through that, it strikes me that one of the ways in which when when we've played games together, the kind of traditional TTRPGs or less traditional TTRPGs that we've played, one of the basic ways in which you reveal surprises is through uh, random elements, right, through rolling a die or through drawing a card or something like this. So does that does that play a part of many of the games that you play in these in these contexts, or is it more kind of um, relational surprises? Well, I think relation <laughs> relations produce a lot of surprises. I mean, we're we're like walking randomizers <laughs> what's going to come up you know in any given moment because we have so many associations um to all the possible things that we encounter so i think that there is a lot of surprises and randomness that is produced by who shows up to the lab how they choose to participate in that particular day um and then there's other uh elements that um randomizing elements i mean i love cards and I love like modifying card decks um, as a way of um, of making my life more playful. So um, one of the games I made up last year uh, using a card deck um, to play with the idea of sort of planning and making like New Year's resolutions and, and sticking to goals, which is um, which can be difficult for myself and I don't know other people as well. Um, was to uh, to make to modify a card deck with like different activities that would take like a, a week to do, um, and uh, yeah, and then I split it up on into seasons. So you know, like a, a suit is thirteen cards. So that's like thirteen weeks, um, and then each each card would have an activity. Um, that could be something fun that, you know, I wanted to try doing like make candles or something like declutter my closet that I thought I should do or whatever. Um, and then I would, um, you know, shuffle the the little deck and pull a card each week and I would be surprised by it. So it's, it's something that I, I've put in, but then I kind of randomize it for myself. So I like doing a lot of things like that to kind of like, and I, and, and that, um, in those kinds of mechanics, I definitely think of like, oh, okay, I'm like, I'm here playing with this universal consciousness or with like the higher intelligence. And like often like the thing, the card that I draw randomly that week is like somehow perfect, right? It's like the, the exact thing that I really need to do, even though I had like sort of planned it for myself, but I didn't know when it would come. So um, yeah, I think playing with the element of timing and like inviting um, whatever higher consciousness that you believe in <laughs> to play with you um, is uh, is something that I, I like to do. But yeah, I think that we have a randomizing dynamic inside ourselves. Like I think that like uh, in any given situation, like, you know, in response to any question, we get this kind of like, uh, one of my professors like once visualized it and I, I can't get that out of my head. Like we, we get this sort of like, cloud of possibilities right of possible responses and like um 
and then you just kind of choose one. You just like, okay, I'm going to choose this one. And that becomes, you know, then that, then that neural connection gets a little stronger. Um, but in a different situation, in a different environment with a different like priming thing, with a different thing you watched on TV, a different thing might, you know, be a little bit more salient. Um, so, you know, I, I, I enjoy um, playing with that mechanic within ourselves. And then when you put the you know, more than one person in a room together, that's a lot of random, <laughs> a lot of randomness. There was, the, there was one direction that I, was, I started thinking about before, um, before coming on today. It's about like participatory research and, you know, having everybody be um, a researcher, which feels really important as part of the like the liberating of research for me, because as, as I was thinking about your project, I was um, thinking about how in like, especially like the tabletop games, there's like a long history of using game like methods in research, especially in like psychology and anthropology, you know, where people have to do like card sorting tasks or, um, you know, respond to different things and or organize things in a particular way. and in those scenarios or those kind of like lab settings, the the researcher is always like is even more powerful, I think, than the like a the game maker, the dungeon master, because they know the right answer, right? And they're like kind of testing you, um, yeah, right? Or like the marshmallow test, <laughs> like don't eat the marshmallow. So I think, and I think that relationship I find <sighs> oppressive and problematic. Um, in the academy and just that like somebody has more power to to tell the account and to make claims about um about people and how they respond to things and and you know the construction of that whole situation especially when it's constructed as like objective and uh non-biased so um yeah i think trying to create a space in the labs where everybody's encouraged to be a researcher and to ask their own questions and to, you know, everybody could write their own lab report and they could completely disagree with my insights. Um, I think I always want to invite that um, and to invite people to experiment with their own lives and um, create games and see what happens and, and change them. I think that, yeah, that's one of the things that I'm trying to play with and, and liberate and, in terms of research and who gets to like kind of hold the title of researcher, you know, in a current system. Yeah, I think that's a really um, important point about participatory research, actually. It's not something um, we've touched on when we've talked about kind of participatory practices and game-like practices. I feel like we've always gravitated towards the educational space because um, all of us have been involved in teaching in one way or another. And some of us, I think, thinking about it a lot because of the types of things we teach as well. Um, so, yeah, but but the but the project is actually kind of about um, game playing as practice-led research. So it's a challenge for me to, um, well, not so much a challenge, but you know, I so say my brain always goes towards that kind of teaching space. So I think the way you articulated it then. Um, I don't know, really highlights it to me. It might like, it kind of brings it out to me in a more striking way. It's like the research methods side of that being really important and game and um, game playing or that kind of relation um, takes that as a starting point. It, it, so it does, so it's sort of already um, from, the, from the point which you play and there might be power dynamics that come out in the play, but um, it's already upsetting that kind of, you know, to be very reductive observer observed type um, research culture. Uh, I just re-encountered re this quote actually, and it was like in an old journal. <laughs> There's a class so perfect for today for, for this podcast interview, which is, uh, you can discover more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation attributed to Plato. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I do think that, um, you know, that in play, we, do, we can discover 
a lot about how people respond to to different concentrated dynamics that might show up in you know in real life, but in real life they might be covered up with more scripts and and status games and uh and yeah like different different masks so um so yeah i I do find that playing um could reveal a lot of uh you know intimate desires and uh uh and 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 sort of different intimate relationships that people have to themselves in the world One of the things I was thinking about as I was listening to all of you reflect on the experience of playing a game together and thinking of the academic journey as its own kind of hero's journey is how lonely it is a lot of the time. And uh, I don't know if you're all in the same program or, you know, so you, you get to, or if you're in different fields or departments and stuff, yeah. So, um, but even within a department, the experience can be really lonely and alienating and competitive. Um, uh, yeah, I had a lucky experience in that, like, my first two years in my graduate program were very um, collaborative and, uh, yeah, shared. And, and then we, we did this, like, really intensive study process as a cohort to prepare for our qualifying exams. And, um, and it, you know, like, as you were describing the ways of getting to know each other, I was almost thinking that that was a similar experience of this kind of like bonding and like going through a journey together and, and facing difficulties. But a lot of people don't really get that in the academic experience. And one of the things that I think that academia does really poorly, um, and it's surprising because it's, you know, it should do it well and it's been doing it for so long, is kind of like, um, it's hold the ritual of initiation. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't do that well. It doesn't hold the space for like the emotions, the transformation, the like, you know, like I think like we, we have all these formal rituals, like the graduation or something, but it's such a like, I don't know, it feels like a very like surface level experience transformation. You have the, you know, the defense, but like that also varies so much. And like, um, and I, I personally, like as I experienced that, I was like, I wanted more from, I wanted like a shaman to initiate me into my scholarship. You know? <laughs> um, so, and, and often research can feel really lonely. And that's the way that the industry is set up is that you're kind of like building your own brand and competing to make your own, um, you know, your name in the field. And uh, in some fields, there's more opportunities for like collaboration and, uh, that's really cool. Um, so, you know, I really love to collaborate with people and I love to work on um, joint projects, mostly because I like hanging out with other with other cool people. Like I just want to have projects that I'm like, let's just do anything that we feel excited about. And really that's just an excuse for us to meet, you know, every week or whatever. So that's kind of like the the journal Refuse is, is, is kind of similar. Like um, I co-edited with someone with Davud that I really enjoy, you know, talking to and collaborating with. And it's kind of a, the project is an excuse for us to keep hanging out with each other. So I just realizing, listening to you that like playing games is kind of like creating this, you know, I don't know. I don't want to call it fake because it's real, <laughs> but like a playful project, a playful goal that you then, um, go through together and experience all of the ex all of the aspects of collaboration you know frustration and um and annoyance and and also delight in each other and, and intimacy um and uh yeah and like it's uh, i think if, if we could make research itself more collaborative and playful that some of that kind of stuff might happen um, I don't know. Yeah, again, like, I don't even want to create these dichotomies of more natural or fake or whatever, because I think that clearly playing games can help us process a lot of unconscious things. And it's, uh, uh, and, and it's also fun. And it's also like spending time non-productively, <laughs> I think is important. Um, 
but I think it, I think it reveals, right, in, in terms of your, your kind of larger question about, like, the relationship between serious play and serious research, it's like, like, we're, you, you, you've created the space because you're missing it in, um, in, the, in the profession, um, the professional space. And so, um, yeah, like, it's, it's kind of like, it's showing you what's, yeah, you call the deficits, right? You're showing you the deficits, what's lacking, um, and it's it's more of this like open, playful, collaborative, very collaborative, um, intimate, nourishing relationality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this podcast project for us is sort of like it's right in between. It's either the most playful research project or like the weirdest RPG we've ever played. <laughs> Yeah, but it is. I mean, and and that's kind of you know, it's this you know, re- reminding ourselves that we're still playing, even when we think and we've convinced everyone else that this is a research project. Turns out that we're actually still having fun. Where can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Yeah, um, well, ludicliberation.com is the um, the seizure-inducing website <laughs> where you could learn more about uh, the approach and the philosophy. And the best way to stay updated is to subscribe to the lab report, uh, which is on ludicliberation.substack.com and try to send something every week to keep myself uh, accountable. And it includes lab reports from uh, the labs that we run and also um, existential game theory um, and yeah, invitations into, into play. This episode is part of a Sadler seminar series at the University of Leeds and it's made possible by the Leeds Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thanks for listening.